This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello and welcome to the Red Box podcast from The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. What a mess. Where shall we start? Well, well, there's the referendum result that no one predicted, the 17 million people giving two fingers to the establishment, the resignation of the Prime Minister, the crashing pound, the downgraded economy, the racist attacks, Boris Johnson suddenly loving immigration again, can Theresa May become Prime Minister? Then, of course, we've got what is the point of Nigel Farage now? Are the Lib Dems really enjoying a revival? And that's without even touching on the Labour Party hitting the self-destruct button with Jeremy Corbyn like a cockroach which just refuses to die. To try to make sense of it all, or at least share in our bafflement, I'm joined this week by shocked Brexiteer Times columnist Tim Montgomery, angry pro-Remain columnist Phil Collins, and helping to referee Times deputy editor Emma Tucker. So this week we've been asking people for the questions they most want answered about the referendum, and between us we're going to try to answer them. So let's start with this. Cloak Dangerfield tweeted, To what extent is it possible to annul or overturn Brexit, and if it is, which method is the most likely? Tim. Is it being so cheerful that keeps you going, Matt, with that (laughs) introduction? The whole idea that we can overturn this decision is a nonsense. And when uh, Jeremy Hunt on Tuesday morning told the Today programme about his plans for a second referendum, you know, this is the sort of thing the European Union always does. It ignores the democratic wishes of people. Now, a lot of people in this country might not like the decision, but it's a clear result and we've now got to implement it. As William Hague, Andrea Leadsom, people on all sides of the argument have said, um, we're not got to be Remain MPs or Brexit MPs now, we've got to be implementation MPs. And if we do try and revisit this decision, then if we think we've got public disillusionment with politics now, it's only just beginning. So I'm not even going to entertain, Matt, an answer to the question. Phil, could you face the idea of another referendum? Never. (laughs) Never on anything ever again. I mean, Tim says we need to implement it, but there is no it. There is nothing to implement. We don't know what it is. We know we're going to leave the European Union, but we don't know where we're going, and we don't know how we're getting there. And I do agree with him that to talk about overturning this and and defying the the verdict is is actually really foolish uh, and would lead to a, a much less trust in politics than already exists. But that's not to say that, therefore, it's definitely going to happen 
or it's not going to happen in some diminished way such that it feels like it hasn't happened. We simply don't know. It's so complicated. Nobody's got the first idea, absolutely culpably, nobody's got the first idea what they want. In fact, they disagree on what they want. Boris Johnson's position today is different from his position yesterday. It's almost like he'd written two columns, and he can't make up his mind which of the two columns is the one he actually thinks. So when do we trigger Article 50 and start the process? Nobody has any notion. So quite what happens, and then you throw a general election into that mix, and if the Labour Party can sort itself out, and there's a reasonable chance it might, and the Labour Party runs on a platform of of stopping this process rather than reversing it, then anything can happen. So... I do agree with Tim's first point about the mandate, and I don't, I'm don't. i not going to join those people who say, let's use parliamentary guerrilla tactics and stop it all. I think that's nonsense. But that's not to say that I can see a clear path to some sun, sunlit uplands, because I can't. I mean, there was another question from something called Andrew Termer, who said, will Boris use his column or number 10 to announce that as Prime Minister he has no intention of triggering Article 50 and that we aren't actually leaving? Do you think that... Because there just isn't a plan, do you think that... We will leave in the way that people think we're going to. Well, on the, on the subject of Boris's column, I think we're all, you know, I think if he if he actually is to become prime minister, he is going to have to give that column up. I know he, he probably doesn't want to, but even a workaholic like Boris Johnson won't be able to run the country and write a column at the same time. As for how we leave, well, uh, Phil's right. We we don't actually know, and. On the issue of a second referendum, unlike my two colleagues here, I think there will be a second referendum, but not for 50 years. Uh, The young people people in my my family uh, are all talking about, you know, what happens when the next generation comes of age. I mean, who knows what they're going to inherit? The situation might be very different. But, you know, I think had we voted to remain, that probably would have been it for our relationship with Europe. Because as we know, so many of the, well, a much higher proportion of young people voted to remain, even though their turnout was was fairly pitiful. Um, so I think there will be a second referendum, just not any time soon. Well, we can all take some heart from that. So Tim, why isn't there a plan? Well, there's not a detailed um, plan. but no, I think There is no plan, Tim. There is pretty, well, there are no contingency plans put together by the government, and I think that is regrettable, first of all. The, <laughs> but that's, the civil that's not true. That's absolutely not true. Mark Carney's got plans. George Osborne's just told the Times yeah. CEO Summit of the, of the detailed contingency plans the Treasury has. So that's not true. You can't expect the people who fought on the other side to do the plan. So many people keep pretending it's the fault of those who argue to remain the European Union that there isn't a plan. That's a lamentable, pitiful thing for them to say. Okay, well, maybe I can finish my point. No, I don't um, see why you should. I want to carry on. <laughs> Got um, it. Finish your point. Where, the, what is the plan? The issue is, you know, the American government has contingency plans for the invasion of zombies as an exercise. Is that, 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 that how you're describing Brexiteers now? Um, <laughs> they, obviously, they don't believe in zombies. Or at least they think they believe in zombies. But they're they not have, Jeremy Corbyn, they, they? They, they have plans for almost all eventualities. And despite what Phil has said, yes, the Bank of England had contingency plans, but the government did not have any serious contingency plans. I think George Osborne said on the Today programme this morning, they have them now. But you had the civil service throughout the campaign, basically working as an arm of the Remain campaign, producing huge amounts of propaganda for them. There should have been detailed plans to know how we could implement but a the leave, Brexit. the Leave campaign was producing a lot of propaganda. Why didn't they have a plan? Well, they haven't got... They're, they're, they've got very clear guidelines of the sort of things that they need to implement. And I understand that Vote Leave do have a... Um, 
operational um, manifesto for how it's implemented. I think they're slightly hesitant about putting it forward at the moment because they're not the government. You know, this has to be a negotiation with the government. But I do you think it's, it's a campaign, not able. If, if they had put forward all of their thoughts straight away, I think a lot of people would have objected on the basis of saying, well, actually, we need some discussion about this. You're not prime minister yet. You're not chancellor yet. But I think, I think uh, w whatever the truth of whether there's a plan or not, to the, to, to the people, it felt like we'd gone from a normal, stable government to something that was completely rudderless overnight. And I think that was very terrifying, particularly when you consider that what I'm told is that the Commission has got a plan and that the other European governments have been working on a scenario whereby we voted for Brexit. And they're ready and waiting now, kicking their heels, you know, itching to get going because they can't wait around forever. And that's what scares me, is that we do feel worried and every day that goes by, we lose we lose negotiating. Uh, our, posi our position worsens, I think. So and is, that, is that Cameron's fault, do we think? Oh. No, I don't think it's Cameron's fault because when we come to exit now, we'll need to know, have an answer to a question like this. Do we want to retain freedom of movement or do we want to lose it? Nobody knows. To not have an answer to that, even though you're a campaign, is culpable. You ought to know. And it's inconceivable, it's silly to demand of a, of a civil service that they have a plan ready when they don't know a f the answer to a fundamental question like that because you can't tell them. Well, the, the, the doom and the gloom in the Times at the moment is extraordinarily deep. But, you know, there's plenty of good options um, ahead of this. What, what, what's, what's the question in the past 24 hours? <laughs> yeah. um, we, we've just escaped from what William Hague once described as it would be a burning building with no exit. No, that was the euro. That, the euro. that, was that the is euro. the euro. We were we, never joined the euro, so we did not if escape I can from get that. Just word well, in say something that's true then. Don't, don't just make things up. Well, you know, if I'm allowed to develop a point, I might be able to explain. Well, what develop one which is true and I won't stop you. The central project of the European Union is the eurozone. That is a burning building without exits. William Hague has been completely vindicated when your party at the time was telling him he was, he was wrong. Now, we have now escaped from an organisation that for many years to come will be dysfunctional because it will be trying to address the Eurozone's problems. America, 60% of federal taxes, taxes go to the federal government. That means that places like Mississippi and Tennessee get 30 to 40% more out of the federal government and they put in. That's the kind of level of fiscal transfer you need to make a single currency area work. Europe is nowhere near to having that sort of fiscal mechanism to make it work. We've got out of that. The young people we who are... In it, Tim. We weren't in it. We have got, we have we, got out of a, an organisation that will be, as I say, will be obsessed with making decisions about how to put that right. So we can now, New Zealand and Australia, have already, Prime Ministers have agreed, they're setting up an exploratory uh, group to see how they can benefit from Britain's decision so that they can trade more freely with us. The Wall Street Journal, Republican leaders in right. Congress have begun to say, let's put Britain at the front of the queue for a trade pact. There's plenty of opportunities and no longer will our opportunities be vetoed by a dirigiste France. It's so, remarkable so that your primary argument is something we're not a member <coughs> of, but we well, give you something we have, we were a member of and are, will no longer be a member of, which is the single market. The central question, as we've all just been hearing at the CEO summit, is what is the relationship of our access to that single market? It's hugely valuable, and we have no notion at the moment what basis we're even going to seek to re-enter, let alone whether we're going to be allowed to. 
And I find it astonishing that a campaign for 40 odd years to take us out of the European Union and then a referendum campaign with some extremely clever people, they don't have an agreed view on something as fundamental as that. And so much so that Michael Gove, supposed to be coming to speak to us, chickened out because he knows he's got nothing to say. Well, look, 90% of our export growth is with countries outside of the European Union. I don't think we will get the exactly as good a deal with the European Union as we have now. It won't be quite as good. But overall, we have a big trade so deficit was, with the, the rest of... What was the of, point? If we don't get as good a deal as we've had before, I thought the whole point was that everything was going to be... If we, if, if we do... Let, let's be positive and optimistic, because it just feels like we're all shouting at Tim. What's the positive, optimistic, good that comes out of this? Well, the, the, a number of things. First of all, for people who want control of immigration... So, so, so for you, freedom of movement is key not, to this? It's not for me, um, although personally it is, but that doesn't matter yeah. what I think. I think the one clear takeaway you can take from the verdict of the British people last Thursday was they wanted immigration yeah. control. And that, of course, is why we won't ha probably have the same access to the single market that we currently have. Because there's have, a trade-off. Because there is a, yeah. there is a trade-off. So that will be a loss. And anyone who says that there are not some downsides from leaving the European Union will not be truthful. The upside for a lot of the British people is that they will get control of immigration and, and, and borders. And then the upside is that we can have much better trade arrangements with the parts of the world that are growing. And we will be able to design those trade agreements in Britain's interests and not have European officials negotiate them for us and other European countries veto trade deals that are in our interests. Can I ask a question about immigration? Because I, I think <coughs> Tim has been absolutely resolute on this throughout, that in, in, in accepting that the mandate of the referendum is very much about, not solely, but very much about immigration. I think some other people on this side of the argument have been trying to wriggle free of that, but Tim has not. And I agree with you that that is a big part of it. I wonder what you think people want, though. Is it control of the borders, or is it, in fact, less immigration? I suspect it's both. And that unless a future government delivers substantially lower immigration, there's going to be a real sense of anger that what we voted for hasn't been delivered. Now, that may well contradict with the economic requirements of the country. And if it does, then what's the government going to do? Is the government going to act absolutely overtly and explicitly against the economic interests of the country in order to deliver that? That strikes me as a horrible dilemma. It was, it was interesting at the CEO summit, the Times held a CEO summit, and the, it was a room full of uh, people who had, by and large, campaigned to remain. But what I thought was quite heartening about it was they all seem to have accepted four or five days on that this is the new reality. And I think the best piece of advice came from Martin Sorrell, who said, shut your eyes, you know, and, ex you know, hold tight and accelerate what you were already planning to do. Because if you stop to think about the, the politics and the economics, you won't make any decisions. So the best thing British business can do is to just plow on. And I thought, well, I actually came away feeling rather more optimistic about, about the outlook uh, than I have done over the last few days. Because I think it is true that disruption often throws up some stranger results. Well, actually, um, t well, it says it's Tim Mitchell, but it might be Tim Montgomery, but Tim Mitchell uh, tweeted, when will the angry Remain supporting media commentators accept the result and start being positive about the future? If they genuinely cannot recover some objectivity and move on, perhaps consider another career, it is becoming tiresome. 
I think I think I think by uh, and large they have honestly I think privately they might all still be you know furious and grieving but certainly uh, uh, as a newspaper we we're not we're, we're no longer going to wallow it's about what happens next I think we're actually getting into what happened I mean, we are talking about the present yeah not the past not trying to rerun the referendum please no well, nobody wants yeah. to do that. no but even in, <laughs> even intellectually not trying to rerun yeah. it I mean I'm, I'm really absolutely clear I, I i remember the the was it the danish or the french referendum years ago and the irish one i remember being apoplectically angry at the the arrogance of the european elites in running it again when they got the wrong answer and i haven't changed my mind about that so i don't think the anger is about that it's about the fact that in the present there mm. is no government and there's no plan for government and that is a perfectly legitimate thing to be angry about because two weeks ago we had both of those things mm -hmm. i was one other thing so i as someone who didn't support David Cameron or vote for him, I feel resentful that a bunch of former columnists have decided that it's up to them to slaughter the Prime Minister. I regard that as an Ill illegitimate thing to have done. No one has slaughtered the, the Prime Minister. No, the Prime Minister held a referendum on an issue which he said was more important than a general election. I think he was right to say that. Um, this is a decision will have ramifications for Britain for much longer than a, than a general election. He put his heart and soul into arguing that Britain should stay over the top, in my view, and I think it was far too much uh, scaremongering, although both sides didn't really exactly cover themselves in glory in the, um, in the campaign. But if you say it's more important than a general election and you lose, and you, partly you lost because the renegotiation of a relationship with Europe that you had negotiated was rejected, in, in, in part of that referendum. I think it's very difficult for, for you to, to go on. So he wasn't thrown out in some illegitimate way. He put yeah. his head on the block, he chose the referendum, and he lost. I think one of the disputes here between us is that for some people, I think it's true of Tim to some extent, it's, this is a, a theologicalist issue as well, and a psychological issue as well as a material issue. Whereas for me, it's not so much. I mean, I sound like I care a lot, but actually, I don't care that much. I've never been particularly enamoured of the European Union, and it's a sort of material question, empirical. Whereas if on the other side, if you start, if you talk about things like freedom and sovereignty, it's a philosophical question. And I'm, I'm trying to describe this rather than disparage it. And, and th therefore, the benefits to you, if you get what you want, are, in a sense, hard, in incalculable. Whereas all our things are material. So we've got this real disjuncture in the argument. And so I wonder, Tim, sometimes if what measure of economic fall would warrant the psychological benefits of the freedom? And what do you want the freedom for if there is an economic collapse mm. or even a fall, not a collapse? Yeah, well, I have said and I said it at the um, Red Box debate, Matt, when we were asked about it, um, a lot of the Brexit um, pro-Brexit campaigners would not acknowledge that there would be any transitional costs. Yeah. And I said mm -hmm. that I think there would be yeah. a transitional <coughs> cost. And I can understand why they wouldn't say it, because no one wants to be um, dangerously honest in, in a campaign. But I'm not pessimistic, Phil, about the long-term prospects of the, of the UK um, economy. And I think you have to remember, you know, why do all these Europeans want to come to London and Britain. Why are the French and the Portuguese and the Spanish coming to our country? They're deserting countries that um, are suffering with incredibly high rates of youth unemployment, highly regulated um, economies, and they're coming to a very creative well, nation. It's a straightforward we're, we're, we're free market. It's a straightforward free market we're, argument, we're, isn't we're, it? You have a single market, so the, the the people go where the jobs are. And when the, when the, when there's a doubt, I mean, ironically, I think that we will have see a drop in immigration, regardless, because if the economy does turn. Well, people, the 
governments will go back to it. And at the EU, the EU is showing some signs of growth. So, uh, I mean, it's just, it, it really is sort of, uh, you know, good services and people moving where they need to be. But the, but the point is, Emma, the fundamentals of the UK economy are the same today as they were a week ago. The yes. reasons why people want to come to, to London, and I think that flow of people should be managed in a way it wasn't in the past. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. But they're coming because they want, you know, the UK is a good place mm-hmm. to, to, to live and work. And that's not going to change. But you don't think that if there were more jobs in Spain, people might want to go live in Spain? Better weather? You know, I mean, I agree they do come here because it's a great country, mm. but it's also because the jobs are here. You know, when the jobs go elsewhere, they will go elsewhere. But three years from now, immigration will be significantly lower than it is today, won't it? Um, I hope so. Mm. And I, I want us to, you know, I think the progressive position is that we should be able to pick immigrants from all over the world. And at the moment, a European citizen has a privileged place in getting access to the UK economy, not just compared to a British person, um, but compared to an Indian or an Australian or an American. And I think we should be picking the most talented people from all over the world. But there probably should be fewer of them, particularly on the low-skilled end of the labour market. The overall number of immigrants in the country is what our economy can absorb. So why will it go down unless the economy falls? Yeah, well, there's plenty of possibility for um, people from, uh, from high, with high skill talent to still enter this country. It's just a question of do we need the same amount of low skilled labour? I think it's partly related to the productivity problems that we have in the UK. Well, let's move on a bit because we're talking about what happens in three years. What we do know is that in three months we're going to have a new prime minister. Um, so, are you, Emma? Who do you think that that will be? I think uh, it might be Theresa May. I, I'm not as certain as some, some other people are that it will be uh, Boris Johnson. I think he's he is a very divisive character, and I think he has become something of a lightning rod for for a lot of people's anger. Whether that's fair or not, you know, I don't know. But but, but it seems like people are very cross with him. I'm not sure that people entirely trusted his motives. That's certainly something you hear a lot, not just in London but outside. People really question whether where his heart lies, and for that reason, uh, although he's still very popular, I, but I think for that reason, it, he, he may not actually quite make make it. Some of the reaction to Boris, and um, did he 
back Brexit just for personal gain or that is a little bit like the Ed Miliband stabbed his brother in the back. Yeah, exactly. That sort of it's one of those ideas which is quite Westminster Villagey in a way. But, it but has actually resonance. it really mm. it sort of in and Ed Miliband never shut that off long after the Westminster mm. Village stopped talking about David Miliband. It was still something that, that voters kept bringing up. I agree with that. I think it's very hard to escape the terms of your victory. And um, Ed never escaped, two things he never escaped. One was um, beating David and the other was a trade union influence in that victory. And he never, ever managed to escape that. Now, whether Boris Johnson will be able to escape the circumstances of his victory with um, uh, David Cameron going, I don't know. I don't know the Tory party well enough to really know the answer to this. But I I do agree with what Emma says, that um, I think that could happen to Boris Johnson because he just doesn't seem like a reputable person. We are sitting in a newspaper where he was sacked for making things up. Tim, you know, you do know the Tory party. What's your sense about who will emerge in oh, September the 2nd? Uh, well, the Tory party has a habit of getting um, rid of its front-running candidates and not, <laughs> and not electing them. You know, If you look a year before Margaret Thatcher, John Major, William Hague, David Cameron became Tory leader, the person they weren't on their radar. You know, the, the, it is often outsiders because the Tory party can be vicious to its front runners. And I have a lot of sympathy with what uh, Emma has has said. Um, he, he and Phil, for that matter, he's, you know, there is a divisiveness towards Boris because of his part in the um, Leave campaign that I think will make it difficult in, uh, difficult for him to become um, the party leader. I wouldn't bet against him. He is mm. still the most popular politician um, in the country. I think a lot of people do feel a Brexiteer should implement Brexit. I think he's helped by the fact that he's going to be standing on a ticket with Michael Gove. And that addresses some of people's doubts, I think, about whether he's a serious or he, he, substantial. There's a, there's a grown up in the background. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, in, as some people would describe it. But I think the point that... Um, Emma makes about Theresa May being a unity candidate, a healing candidate. That could be really important. And if if the market turbulence we're currently seeing continues, and in four to six weeks, um, you know, it's still there. Theresa May may look like the safe pair of hands mm-hmm. to calm things down. I don't think the Crab Javid ticket will work. I don't think people want sort of inexperienced people at a time when some very big decisions to be taken. So I think it probably is the Theresa v. Boris contest. Tim, I, I, I very much agree with the, with that point about the if the turbulence carries on this is really bad for Boris and I wonder too as you said whether he can be the unity candidate and therefore I wonder whether isn't the endorsement of George Osborne quite a prize for him in order to bring over the Remain side George Osborne commands quite a a phalanx on the back benches because of his time as Chancellor and that Osborne might be in the peculiar position of of being able to uphold Boris yeah although I think some sort of more harder line Brexiteers will worry that if George Osborne is a key part of the ticket. It might mean that um, the single market, access to the single market, will become a big part of uh, the new government's aim and potentially watering down the end of freedom. Uh, And and, and crucially, it will come at a price. And there's been stories in the Times this week that Osborne would expect to be Foreign Secretary as a price and Foreign Secretary would play a big role in mm. the renegotiation but that could quite dramatically shift what we How can you have a Foreign Secretary has just told us a few moments before we came down to this podcast that Britain's embarking on a major mistake? I just don't understand how that doesn't come back to haunt you. Well, that's why I think it's very difficult for George, you know, he said he wanted to carry on serving in, in government. I think it's very difficult for George Osborne to carry on and remember it's not just that he's 
on the wrong side of the Brexit debate, according to most Conservative vote members who are going to decide this this election. He's messed up three budgets. You know, he's pro- promised to have eliminated the deficit. We haven't got rid of the deficit. Since he was no longer constrained by the Liberal Democrats, the cuts that are being made are very regressive. They really fall disproportionately on poorer households. And so, you know, and we've now learned he's not the tactical genius that we were told in the past that he was. So I'm not sure George Osborne is much of an asset to any um, Tory potential leader. Don't you think, I've written before about Boris Johnson and he, ages ago, I thought he should have put himself at the head of the Cameron Osborne project and should have been the heir to that rather than the, the, the assassin of it. And that's the problem for Boris, is that his own politics are in fact on the liberal conservative side. But he's now saddled himself with a whole bunch of allies who don't agree with him. And this is the the dilemma that's going to come back and recur and recur. How does he satisfy the people who are his ostensible friends? Well, I think he's. I, I think you shouldn't be so fearful, Phil. I think Michael Gove and Boris are exactly as you describe them. They are essentially liberal, open politicians. But. The, the most illiberal thing that could have been done was to allow freedom of movement to carry on and on and in on. Because po- I've seen what that's done in America during my time with the Times there. You, you get, end up with a Trump when people no longer feel in control of their borders. The way to maintain the liberal country that I hope we will continue to have is for people to feel safe and to feel that when a politician says something, like they're going to bring immigration down, they have the capacity to do it. I totally agree with you, and I am fearful of the far right when this promise is reneged upon. And the last person I would offer, I would want to carry out this crucial task is Boris Johnson. On Theresa May, is she any good, or is she good at disappearing like Gordon Brown used to, the submarine cabinet minister who... You know, she, 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 she survived a long time in the mm. Home Office by not doing what Home Secretaries normally do, which is chase headlines. But you can't hide if you're Prime Minister. Do you think she could? Is she up to the job? Um, I know that the Home, Sec- Home Office is a ministerial graveyard. She has survived. And a lot of what, of course, a Home Secretary does is completely unseen. Mm. You know, and you talk you know, to ministers, you talk to cabinet ministers, you see the amount of work that is done by our security services and police to keep us safe, foiling attacks. And she's at the heart of that. And, you know, she does know how government works. She has good relations with, you know, lots of her European counterparts. And that gives her an advantage over Boris. You know, she, she is actively involved already in European politics. And we are about to embark on extraordinary renegotiations. And she's probably better equipped for those renegotiations than any other candidate. I'm told she goes, she goes down very well in Europe as well. I think it's interesting how little we know about her yeah. compared with yeah. other politicians. Uh, and that's something that obviously if she became Prime Minister, the press in particular would want to know a lot more about. I don't think we know. I mean, having worked with the Prime Minister and seen them up close, you realise it's a very tough job. You need to be very, very intellectually nimble um, and extremely smart. I don't know if she's good enough. I'm not saying she isn't. I simply don't know. The one person in this whole conversation who I think is good enough in that respect and who I completely respect as a person of principle who thinks the same today as he thought 25 years ago is Michael Gove. Now, there are reasons why politically Michael Gove is a very divisive figure and probably he's probably right to think that he shouldn't be the front man, but um, I'd be a lot less uh, annoyed at them if Michael Gove were the front man rather than Boris Johnson. It, it always makes somebody more appealing as a candidate if they have the good sense to rule themselves out for good reasons and the fact that he was removed from his dream job because he was knocking percentage points off the Tory numbers in the run of the last election. He, he knows that rather than blindly carrying on, you know, sort of Gordon Brown blindly carrying on in the face of 
the face of facts. But that's yeah. that's sort of also one of the reasons why it would make him a good good candidate. Let's move on. If we could just t- touch briefly on what's going on in the Labour Party. Oh, do we have to? Somebody asked, um, Evan Scrimshaw asked, who determines whether Corbyn is automatically on the ballot or not for another Labour leadership contest? There seems to be general acceptance that he is on the ballot. Yeah, the answer to that is always politics. Yeah. Um, he, he just will be because you can't realistically. It's a sort of moral question rather than a legal question, and he will be on the ballot. I mean, formally it would go to the NEC, and then if they couldn't agree, it would go to some legal jurisdiction. But he will be on the ballot. It would be, in a sense, wrong to keep him off. Um, and the question then is: Have the has the membership of the Labour Party changed sufficiently that they've decided to elect someone who could win? It just might, because the circumstances are so different. It looks it's feasible now with an election that you could win it. It's feasible with a good win, good leader and a completely different set of positions than the Corbyn positions. It's possible if there's turbulence over the next few months. Emma, do you think that the person because we're now at the situation where the vote of no confidence is happening as we speak, so we don't actually know it, but we, we can probably guess what the outcome of that is. Well, I'm not sure we can actually. He seems to have great powers of endurance. <laughs> but let's just, let's assume then he loses the vote of no confidence. There is a there is a leadership contest. It seems like the non-Corbyn MPs are going to rally around either Tom Watson or Andrew Eagle with an acceptance that neither of them would actually win a general election, but it's the sort of first step to getting somewhere into a place. So so do, do you think that this, they're not even choosing the candidate to be the leader who would be the leader? No, I'm sure they're just, they are so keen to see the back of Corbyn that they are grabbing the first sort of reasonable person <laughs> that they can to, to sort of steady the ship, see them through the next uh, few weeks, but presumably not stand in a general election in three months' time. But then that, of course, you know, you get to the next question, which was, well, who on earth would replace either Andrew, Angela Eagle or Tom Watson? And I defer to Phil on that one. Well, that goes back to the problem, the whole reason that Corbyn's leader now is because mm. everyone else is rubbish. Yeah, there's no obvious answer to that question. Or as you say, they'd probably be leader already. I mean, the, the names that come up are Dan Jarvis, Chakramuna, uh, I think there'll be a massive number of people who will fancy their chances, people that, that you and probably I have never heard of. Um, <laughs> then there's well, the, most of the shadow cabinet. The now. constant yeah. ghost uh, of David Miliband stalking in the corridors of Westminster again. Uh, that story is doing the rounds again. Well, because because of the Batley and Spen by-election, that's, that, right. that, that's given it a reason for mm. yes to give it legs again. Yes, it has. And the politics has, have changed and... The reason this story keeps recurring, though, is precisely because there's no other good answer yeah. to mm-hmm. the question. I mean, let us just indulge the fantasy for a minute. A David Miliband-led Labour Party with with positions that David Miliband would take up would be quite competitive against uh, the Conservative Party that was still trying to engineer a, an exit with a back-of-an-envelope plan. Well, would it, would it though, Phil, though, really? Because you, you I say competitive. I don't say it would win. You know, you've seen a breakup of the left in lots of parts of the world now, post-Schroeder, post-Kevin Rudd in Australia, post-Blair, something after these modern reforming leaders have led the Labour parties, left-wing parties to big victories, there has been this big left-wing reaction. And where are these hard left people going to go? Are they Mm going to really just support David Miliband or are they going to support the Greens or... Well, something isn't isn't that a real danger that we're seeing a major? Or isn't there a real danger we're seeing a major split on the left? No, I, I don't believe that the the Maltese left has any influence on the New Zealand left. I don't really believe in these grand forces uh, and witness uh, eight years of a Democrat president and no doubt another eight years to come. But I take your point that in this country 
there has been a real reaction to the left. And if, if, if it were David Miliband or anybody else, it will not be remotely like the 1997 to 2007 period because the, the, the big thing the Labour Party would have to do is to try and stake out a position which is to stay within the EU in some way but on condition that something serious happened on freedom of movement across Europe. If you get that sort of position, then there's a chance, and I put it no higher than that, of addressing the concern that you set out, which makes you vulnerable to UKIP, whilst at the same time holding on to the coalition of the 48% who voted to stay in. And that's the, that's the thought, the, where they tried to get to. Tim, you were working for Ian Duncan Smith in the dying days of his mm. leadership. What's it like being in that bunker? Mentality, if not actually a physical bunker. Yeah, awful. You know, it's a pretty, it's a pretty grim um, time. And um, you know, one thing you do learn is that um, as much as we, are, I, I generally respect politicians. You know, they're not always the most honest of people. And you know, assurances of loyalty and things that they promise that they will do are not always executed by them. And that's what we're seeing played out in the Labour Yeah, tonight, and I yeah. think we're seeing a massive breakdown in trust and discipline in the Labour Party and I'm sure they'll get rid of Jeremy Corbyn and they should because this country needs a good opposition. You know, the, I, think the, I think the Conservative Party has become more rebellious, more fractious, less focused on the tasks of government because it hasn't feared the electoral consequences so long as Jeremy Corbyn's there. We need a better, better Labour opposition. We're slightly running out of time but Charlie Lindler asked when will it end? When, when do we get back to normal life? Are we ever going to be back to normal life? Um, well, it, people are comparing it to a divorce. And what people say about divorce is that, is that you start to feel normal again after two years. This is, this is so, but, I, but, you know, but, but to, you're but not, it, you're not improving my mood. No, <laughs> two years is the minimum as right. well. And then, uh, you know, life gradually starts to get back to normal. It doesn't, I mean, it already feels, I mean, it already feels more normal, I think. People, you know, the mood upstairs in our, at our CEO summit was one of, okay, that this phrase we keep hearing, we are where we are. <laughs> so now let's get on with it. I think I think gradually people. I mean, there's a big demonstration uh, this week of uh, p- presumably mostly young people who are very unhappy at the result. But I think by and large, these are the things that will fizzle out, and uh, the new normal will gradually assert itself. It'll just be a different normal will mm. arrive. Uh, when we used to argue about this at the Times, and I would always used to say to Danny Finkelstein as he went on and on and on about the federal government they were planning. I'd say to him every morning, I'd greet him by saying, what has the European Union done to you today? Oh, nothing. You haven't noticed it. Most people, most of the time, (laughs) don't really notice the European Union one way or the other. So for most people, life is still already normal. The world hasn't stopped turning No, we still all get up in the morning and we carry on. And and we will. Yeah. Um, The last question that was sent was from James Norman, who said, who won the red box sweepstake? (laughs) And what proportion of the £350 million will they receive as a prize? The answer is Alexander Drake, who lives in Sydney, Australia. So I know Alexander Drake. So is not eligible for any of the money that we're about to get back from Brussels. Uh, so there that we are. sounds like inside information yeah. to me. 48.15, <laughs> I think, was his prediction. Uh, thank you to everyone uh, who entered, with two-thirds of people predicting a main win. It showed you are as clueless as we are. Uh, that, unfortunately, is all we've got time for this week. Please do subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and your Android device. If you need a guide to guide you through these crazy times, sign up to my Red Box Morning email briefing and we'll get through this 
links together. It's thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox email. If you've got more questions or comments about the current state of British politics, email redbox at thetimes.co.uk, tweet at timesredbox or find us on Facebook. But for now, from Tim, Phil, Emma and me, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.